Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. But beautiful. Um, <clears throat> so when Shmuley asked me, I gave a bunch of topics potentially to talk about him, and uh, one of them was the, you know, sort of my perspective or on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But the truth is that an, an American Jewry, you know, kind of American Jewry, Israel. Um, the truth is, I'm no expert on the Israel-Palestine conflict, except my expertise is my experience. I'm lived in Israel for, I come from LA originally, from the San Fernando Valley, and uh, I've lived in Israel for 33 years, counting the one, hmm? It's almost the Sabra. Almost the Sabra, exactly. Uh, Most of my, it's turned the corner and now it's most of my life. And um, yeah, it happens to be, I'll just start because I am a rabbi, so I have to start with the Devar Torah. But it is, it is the, it, okay, we're talking a little bit about a subject that has become kind of a rift between Israel and the United States. And we have a rift in our Parsha reading because for you guys, this upcoming Parsha is Bahalotcha. But in Israel, what are we reading in Israel this Shabbat? Shalach Lecha. And Shalach Lecha is all about Israel, the original spies going to Israel saying, this neighborhood is too tough. We should not be here. And uh, there's a Hasidic Torah that says that the difference, why, why did Yehoshua and uh, Kalev, uh, how do they see it differently? They were the two spies who said, no, we can do this. We can do this. And um, uh, so the Hasidic uh, Torah says, because they, when they looked at the land of Israel, they looked at it with themselves in it. And the other ones looked at it from the outside as if they weren't there yet. And only when you look at it, with, look at it within it, then, then you can see the possibility of actually being there, actually uh, being part of the land. So, <clears throat> so really what I'm going to do is to kind of take you through um, my experience, um, um, I, I have to say that, um, you know, um, Shmuley mentioned Rabbi Shlomo Karbat, so he used to say, when God wants to, when, when people want to build a bridge, they, they look for the person who's the biggest expert at building bridges. But when God wants to build a bridge, he looks for the person who wants to build the bridge the most, you know? And um, I don't know which bridge you'd rather walk on, though. <laughs> but I don't think he means the same kind of bridge. Um, and uh, I certainly feel very passionately about this subject. In fact, 
uh, I sometimes find myself, you know, working at my computer, and uh, you know, all of a sudden I see on Facebook this uh, uh, something by uh, some kind of uh, friend of mine. Usually, it's a Jewish academic from the United States, and uh, he's he's uh, writing something that I don't agree with about Israel, and posting something about Israel and writing something, and I drop everything and start to enter a duel, you know, with him on Facebook. So, um, uh, you know, we once got in with one particular person, we once got to the point where I said, look, if you don't want me to, to you know, he was basically saying, get off my, you know, I don't think you should be writing on this, you know. I said, look, if you don't want me, you can defriend me. He said, I never defriend you, we're friends for so long. I said, I didn't mean defriend me as a friend, I just meant defriend me on Facebook, you know. Anyway. <laughs> um, so, um, and in fact, another friend of mine, I actually wrote down, jotted down this topic because I had another friend, also a Jewish academic, uh, who writes about the Zohar, who posted something that uh, was led to this, uh, led, led to me jotting down this topic. And what he posted was, he posted a, um, he posted a post about the group of young people called If Not Now. You've heard of them. They're an anti-occupation, uh, Jewish anti-occupation group. And he said, uh, and they were in their, 20s, yes. in their 20s. And I'm sure Shmuley knows them and probably like, not involved, but knows them. Um, and, uh, and he was saying, you know, this is the future of, uh, this is the future. These are the best young Jews that there are. And I was like, I, I said, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't agree. I mean, I have nothing against the people, but I don't think that, that, that necessarily that tactic is right because I believe that the whole point here is to be able to hold more than one thing in your, in your hand at the same time and not to reject. You know, I'm, I, I see Israel, all I see about Israel is the occupation of the West Bank. That's all I see. And, and therefore, you know, um, they're the group, for example, the same group. Not, not that I have anything against the group, and I don't even know that much about them, but I know that the group that goes on birthright and then demonstratively leaves birthright. And, you know, my feeling is stay in birthright, open the conversation, bring the materials in, talk to people, talk to the people, but don't, the, the problem, big problem, and I'm going to get back to this at the very end, I think in the world today is that we're not able to, um, we want to, um, that, it's a, that it's a world that's become obviously so, so polarized that we can't even talk to each other anymore. We have to, we have to do, we have to do walkouts. And if we're, if we believe one thing, then we can't, then that, that means we can't believe anything else. And we have to just be within that one bubble. So if we're a Trump supporter, then we can't believe in climate change. And if we're a, a, a person on the progressive person, so we have to have you know, exactly this set of beliefs. And, and it's very much become where your political views becomes your identity and where you, where, and where I, I believe that what we have to do is to, to, to break down those identities and those polarizations and find the sparks of light in where, wherever, wherever they are. So um, I also want, you know, it's a small group, and if anyone wants to stop me at any point, 
and to say something, to you know, agree or disagree, please do, because otherwise I'm just talking. I'll just talk, and it might be boring for you to just hear my voice all the time. Yes? I do have a question in terms yes. of considering what's going on politically in Israel. Yeah, yeah. What can you tell us in terms of some of the stuff, stuff that's going on in Israel in terms of talking about polarization between the Haredi and Netanyahu wanting to basically create a very right-wing Orthodox government. Right. And, um, and the rest of Israel kind of thing. Okay. So what can you tell us in terms of how is that going to be okay to work out? And, okay. Um, the other question that I have in Israel is we're going to be yeah. talking about Poverty in the, you know, the sort of global thing. There's a lot of poverty in Israel. Right. And nothing is being done about it, and everybody's talking how wonderful Israel is. There is a large percentage of the Israeli public that isn't poverty. Mm -hmm. and why isn't it being addressed? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. Okay, so I do want to, you know, I do, I, what I kind of meant was not open for all questions, because that I think we'll do at the end. Um, but I, I do, but I meant more in terms of what I'm saying right now. But just very quickly to answer your questions, just so they get answered. Um, what's happening right now, I mean, obviously, I think you probably know, but that Netanyahu, I don't think Netanyahu wants to form a, a right-wing government with the, with the ultra-Orthodox. He wants to form a government with him at the head, because he's afraid of his neck right now. He's afraid of being indicted, and, and that was his main, you know, he's afraid of being indicted. He wants to hold on to, he wants to hold on to power. He's been there for a long time. I think he also may authentically believe that he is the savior of Israel in some kind of way, political, I don't mean messianic, but in some kind of way he may authentically believe that no one else can do what he does. So I'm not saying that he's insincere, but he's fighting for his political life and, and for his life in a sense because he may go to jail and therefore he wanted to make that government at whatever cost. Uh, in fact, he reached out to labor at a certain point and was gonna make a, a, a government with labor. Um, so what's happening now is that there are new elections. Lieberman, uh, Viktor Lieberman, who his, client, his people are the Russians, and, uh, and Russians often, the secular Russians, many of them not, might not be Jewish on both sides and feel they feel that they are um, uh, at a disadvantage and harassed by the rabbinate and they want to live without the rabbinate, they're anti-religious. So he, 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 thought, he saw an opportunity. I mean, he's been consistently anti-rabbinate because these are his, his people, but he saw an opportunity um, to gain. He almost, he shrunk from, when, uh, you know, a number of years ago, he had 19 seats, he shrunk to five seats, and this way he's gonna make, his, make, it, make, it, make it larger. So what's gonna happen, we don't, none of us know. Either the right wing will be able to form uh, more than 61 or more seats without Lieberman, or Lieberman is going to force a um, unity government, apparently, between the blue and white and the, and, the, and the Likud without Netanyahu, apparently. That's what seems to be on the... And the question of poverty in Israel, that's a huge question. I totally agree with you. Uh, I don't see the work that I do in the Global South as contradicting the opposite. I think it's a sensitization for the young people that come through the program 
to when they come back to Israel and to work on such problems also in Israel. I think that they're related. I think for the problems in Israel are related to poverty also in the United States. I think that they're related to the fact that there's a, a certain kind of ideology in the world right now uh, that has led to gaps in income between uh, rich and poor in many places in the world and in Israel too because Netanyahu is like, like the Republican presidents, he holds by that idea. And that's what's happening. So I think there needs to be a kind of a political revolution in Israel as well in terms of that. Okay, so what I wanted to do was to give you some pictures of what, what, what I went through in terms of my thinking in the uh, 30 years or so, 31 uh, contiguous years that I was in Israel. And, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Zionist. Um, uh, I'm a Zionist in a number of ways. And a very strong experience for me was in the 67 war. I was, I, was, uh, I guess, eight, eight, no, nine years old. Um, but I remember that before 67, I grew up in the Orthodox community in, in Los Angeles. So there, most everyone was, uh, many, many people were, uh, you know, my kids' friends, my kids' uh, parents, my kids' parents, my friends' parents were uh, all, you know, had at least one Holocaust survivor. My, my father was a refugee from Germany. People had, you know, their parents were from Auschwitz or from hiding in the forest. They hid in the forest or everyone had some kind of crazy story among the Orthodox in, in Los Angeles, which was a much smaller group than I, when I grew up, I knew just about every single Orthodox person in Los Angeles. Um, now it's multiplied by many factors. Um, but um, what I remember is that before 67, no one, in, no one in Los Angeles, even if they, unless they were, you know, full-on Hasidic, but even if you were very Orthodox, you would not go outside with a kippah unless you were going to synagogue. Like, for business, you don't wear a, you don't wear a kippah. It was, it was known. And even the rabbi of the, the head of the school, when he switched from being the school principal to starting a spice business, he didn't wear a kippah. And after 67, all of a sudden, people started to wear a kippah. Yeah, I noticed that, and I think it's true. And, and what I think that's, um, you know, the motif is that I think that Israel empowered American Jewry. As much as American Jewry empowered Israel, Israel empowered American Jewry. And, um, and gave, uh, gave, gave a, lot of, a lot of pride, a lot of strength. And, um, of course, I'm... Uh, I'm a Zionist because I felt that, that this is what was happening in Jewish history right now. This is our chance. This is our opportunity. We've been waiting for this for 2,000 years. And really, I felt that after the Holocaust, if there hadn't been that compensation of this new, uh, of, of a new, something new happening, uh, this incredible new opportunity uh, uh, and fulfillment you know, of all these prophecies, the state of the land of Israel, I don't know if Judaism would have um, survived. So it moved me on a mythical and a religious level as well as on a practical level. And all of this was reinforced when I first traveled to Israel in the 1970s. I fell in love with the depth, the history, uh, the people, um, the, the, you know, how, how, how different, different the different groups of people were. I mean, I came from the San Fernando Valley where basically everything was pretty much 7-Elevens and Vons. You have this beautiful uh, desert right around you. But the, I like to say about the San Fernando Valley that there was no 
nature, no history, and no culture. <laughs> the big three. It's pretty, pretty sterile. Yeah, a lot of space, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so, but then when I first arrived as an Ole to Israel in 1998, uh, it was after the outbreak of what was called the first intifada. Um, and uh, I joined the army uh, to do basic training there. I was 30, I was 32 uh, years old, so I was only, I had to do a three months basic training, and then afterwards do the reserve duty. And I remember during that first uh, um, uh, Saddam, uh, you know, intifada, uh, there were those, uh, Saddam was sending these missiles, and people were really afraid that there were chemical weapons in these, in these missiles, you know? It was a real fear, especially the first, the first couple of nights. And, um, and it, it was during the Intifada, and the Palestinians actually were celebrating, not like the fake news about the, the Muslims celebrating the, uh, the ta Twin Towers, but there were, Pal I'm not saying all the Palestinians, but there were Palestinians celebrating these chemical we weapons. Saddam was a big supporter of the Palestinian cause. Back in 91. 91, yeah, 91. Um, and at the same time, in my unit, there's this young man, his name is Hillel Lieberman, and he is very, very devout. He, he stays up late, we all collapse into our, uh, you know, to get our five hours of sleep or six hours of sleep. He stays up with a flashlight to learn Torah, he gets up early, he's davening all the time. It was very annoying because we were waiting for him all the time and we would get punished sometimes for him, but very, very devout. So he says, in the middle of the Gulf War, he says, I know, I've heard, the Lubavitcher Rebbe has said, we're going to end up on the other side of the Jordan River, and we're going to make settlements in what's, what's now Jordan. And I'm like, Hillel, maybe, but what if the war ends and that doesn't happen? What are you going to say? No, 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 no. Of course, the war ends, it doesn't happen, and he won't even, doesn't even remember that, that he, he said it. He's just, he's on to the next. So it's also I'm encountering for the first time there, this, there is a very strong, you know, kind of messianic faction that's connected to this uh, idea of the land of Israel. And it's something that I've always rejected. When I was in yeshiva in, in, in the 1970s, in the, gush, in the gush, there was a gush amunim, and I never understood how, I never really clicked with that, with that idea. But here I encountered it with Hillel, and we'll hear a little bit more about Hillel later on. So, um, and then, um, um, you know, about, uh, you know, about four months after the war, I was in uh, Operation Solomon. Who was here this morning? You guys were here, so you heard this story already, but, but um, I was in Operation Solomon, and uh, after Operation Solomon, we were a bunch of journalists waiting, waiting for the rebels to come in, and we're, well, they're, they're ragging me for being Israeli. And um, Israel is a fascist state. You know, all of this didn't start now. It's been going on for a long time. You know, this was 1991. Israel is a fascist state. They're just going to use the Ethiopians as cabin fodder. And then, as I said earlier today, that, that as then I was with a group of journalists and were caught in the crossfire between the rebels and the army of uh, the communist government, Mengistu, that's been overthrown, and the shooting going on. And, and the other journalists say to me, Micha, you're Israeli, get us out of here. 
So there's always this dual nature of being both uh, hated and, uh, and, and needed. Um, so about three months after, uh, after my three months of training, the following year, it's still the very end of the first intifada, I was called up into a reserve unit. And our first assignment was uh, Hebron, which is heartland of both Jewish, but in this case, Islamic extremism. And um, um, as we're going to Hebron, uh, my bus is hit. Our bus is hit by a Molotov cocktail. And it's night. We can't see anything. So the commander orders us off the bus and says, shoot, shoot into the darkness, which is absolutely the opposite of orders. Orders are you don't shoot at anything you, you don't see. But orders are one thing, and uh, what actually happens is, is another. Yes? No, it wasn't on fire. It, it exploded, but it didn't. It didn't. It didn't. It wasn't. On, it wasn't on fire. And, and then I'm sitting there in Hebron for where, in, in a month, for a month. And part of my assignment, part of the time I'm there, I'm on a rooftop, in the middle of an Arab neighborhood, and I see hundreds of Islamic, like young women who are going to some kind of Islamic school, walk by every day, and they're dressed, you know, with the head covering and a whole thing, and. The foreignness of who they are, you know, is is so so strong. I mean, obviously they don't know a word of Hebrew, but also just their their culture. I mean, they they truly are part of this, you know, Islamic culture. And I have a very strong feeling there's no way that we can, you know, absorb these people into our, um, you know, into our state. How can we possibly uh, think that we can that we can that we can do that? Um, so from our point of view, then, then I have another experience in, Ga in the border with Gaza, and I'm in, I'm in uh, another reserve uh, uh, duty the next year, and um, one of the, uh, uh, and, and then at a certain point, I'm guarding, I have to, you know, I'm guarding the, uh, uh, the entrance in, in and out of Gaza, and this Arab man, middle-aged Arab man, looking like quite, quite bedraggled, and he wanders towards us, and he's not supposed to be there. He's not supposed to be there, so we have to stop him and take his ID and call in his ID. Who is he? What is he? So meanwhile, these two young soldiers, as I'm an old soldier, I'm 32, they're 30, at this point 33 or 34, they come down in all their 18 or 19-year-old you know, fervor, and they, they, it's a broiling hot day, they say he's got to kneel with his hands above his head in the sun until we get an answer back, which is going to be 45 minutes. And I'm like, what? We have a big fight. I can't even remember the truth is if I won or not. And I think I was able to get him out of, out of the sun. But my feeling was here we are where we're, we're, you know, this situation is, is creating cruelty. I'm just saying these little pictures of how what happened. Um, and then I hear from my other people in, in my unit that they, were, they went into Gaza, they took a, a prisoner who was a terrorist, apparently, and they're bringing him to Israel to, for, for trial, and they, they beat him up in the, in, the in, the, in the van. Now, it wasn't orders for them to do that, but they did it. And I'm horrified, horrified. So I was very, very happy, very excited and uh, euphoric when the Oslo agreements were announced the next year, 1993. The Oslo Agreements. It's, uh, I think, it's September 1993 is the first signing, and 
In October, like a week or two later, it's Sukkot, Sukkot, and I'm in, uh, and I go with a, my wife and a bunch of friends and to the area of Nablus, Shechem, to the mountain above Nablus, Har Grizim, which is where uh, Israel, uh, where, where uh, Moshe had people, uh, you know, before the, I mean, he ordered it from the desert, but the blessing on Har Grizim and the curse on Har Eval, and, um, and, we're, and, and we're celebrating with the Fatah, with the, uh, with the PLO. They, we're, we're, we're the Sukkot Shalom, we build a Sukkot together, we're celebrating, there's this tremendous uh, euphoria that I remember, tremendous feeling of hope and euphoria. Um, and of course, uh, uh, later in, uh, in other uh, Niluim, um, and other uh, reserve duties, um, we're, um, we're now uh, doing joint, joint uh, patrols with the Palestinians. They have guns, we have guns. I'm actually usually left at the base because I'm a very uh, you know, low-level soldier compared to other people, but, but uh, only three months of training or whatever, but doing these joint patrols with, uh, with, the, with the Palestinian Authority. And uh, you know, it feels like something tremendous and something very real has, has happened. In many other places, where yeah, yeah, the between ninety-one and between ninety-three, ninety-three, and uh, and I guess two thousand. There's something the American media never tells you. Yeah, yeah, and there was a big movement against it. There were all these people don't give them guns. They were saying don't give them guns. Now, of course, all during this period, until the year two thousand, and the whole thing broke up, there were also bad things that were uh, there was the Goldstein massacre, which was something, you know, very shocking and terrible. I remember at that time I was working with the Ethiopian community, so I was I, and and very much involved with advocacy for them. So I knew the Ethiopian Ethiopian Jewish community. So I knew Yair Saban, who was a uh, uh, the minister of absorption at the time. And I said to him, "Tell Robin, like I have to tell Robin to take the settlers out of Hebron." It's an opportunity. Take them out of Hebron now. They're gonna, you know, it's only gonna make more, more, more and more trouble. But he he didn't take them out of out of Hebron. And then a year later, of course, he was assassinated, and more buses were exploding, and um, you know. And but at the same time, there was, a, you know, we all kept up this uh, hope, this uh, tremendous hope that uh, that the, that after all, in the end. This peace agreement was signed. It was signed once in 93. It got signed again in Cairo, I believe, in 1995. The Americans are behind it. Remember, we're living now in a unipolar world. You know, the Soviet Union has collapsed. The United States is, seems very, very powerful. Um, it, it's, it's going to happen. Um, yeah? My, my memory may not be accurate, but I thought joint patrol not exactly continued, but happened intermittently even well after the year 2000. Could be, yeah, yeah, could be, could be. I stopped doing, the, stopped. I stopped okay. doing reserve duty like okay. around that time. When I hit 40, yeah. yeah. When I hit 40, I didn't have to do them anymore. So it's, yeah, it's possible. And I think now there's still, there still is security cooperation. Yeah. There's not, I don't know if there's joint patrols, but there still is security right. cooperation. So this is happening, and um, 
then comes uh, the, the, uh, the, the very last, somehow, this conference that, uh, uh, that Clinton makes, right, in the year 2000. Actually, I was with my family when, well, well I'm getting ahead of myself, and the, Cl the Clinton makes this you know, conference with Barack and with Arafat, and uh, there's a no-go. No-go, Arafat doesn't want to sign, and the second Difada begins. I was actually with my family in the Sinai. We, we used to go every year, twice a year, to the Sinai, to Egypt. Once to the beach in the winter, and in the summer, or, you know, we would go up into what's called the high mountains, where Mount Sinai is. Have you, any of you been in there? So we took, this was Rosh Hashanah, and a bunch of my friends got together, and we, we got a, we, we, we uh, rented a Sefer Torah, and we went up to the high mountains with camels and the whole thing, and we made Rosh Hashanah up there in, in Sinai. I remember my mother asking, what are you going to do with, for chairs? I said, we have a Sefer Torah. What are you going to do for chairs? But, uh, so we didn't have chairs, but um, we have the shofar, the Sefer Torah. Anyway, we come down from the mountain, and if you remember, the second intifada started on Rosh Hashanah, 2000, in the year 2000. We come down from the mountain, and the sheikh of the camels, there's a sheikh who, he's the one who hires us. He's not friendly anymore. Everybody's looking at us with a sour face. We go back towards the beach where we always go in the winter, and there's a sign up there, no Israelis, no Israelis wanted, no Israelis allowed. All right. Anyway, the second intifada for me was another turning point, a terrible turning point. It was a shocking turning point for me, and I think for many, many Israelis. And I think that it's a key for understanding why Israel has, has moved to the right. And, it's a, and it, for me, it's, a, it's, it's part of the reason that I get um, angry when I feel like there's not, where, where, where I feel that Israel is being blamed one-sidedly. I feel people have such a short historical memory because, I don't know if you remember the Second Intifada, but there started to explode uh, suicide bombs. And um, very early on, I was upset. I'll, I'll, I'm going to give you um, something. Um, yeah. Here. This was the, the, the New York Times correspondent. Um, maybe, I think they're enough for everybody. Did a story um, that uh, was called Pressure of War Splinters Israel's Left. You guys can. And, uh, and uh, I was one of the main interviewees. Somehow, because of my work with Ethiopians, I knew all the, because I was a journalist, I knew all the correspondence. So he wrote, Micha Odenheimer, who was 43, grew up in Los Angeles, immigrated to Israel 13 years ago. Um, uh, the future looks so dim now that he worries about his 13-year-old son, who will have to enter the army in five years. He's already entered it. He's already gone through. He's already. <laughs> but um, it's worse to have the hope and to lose it he said, than never to have had it. Micha Odenheimer, Mr. Odenheimer, rabbi and writer, uh, was grappling, is grappling with ideas behind the conflict that turned him from a believer in imminent peace to a skeptic. 
For Mr. Odin Arez, for many leftists, hope began to fade when Mr. Arafat rejected an Israeli peace proposal made at Camp David. Like other leftists, Mr. Onham was shocked to discover that Mr. Arafat insisted upon a right of return for Palestinian refugees of the many wars here. The Israelis offered the Palestinians their own state. Why would they still demand a right to live in Israel, he worried, unless they wanted to achieve through demography what they could not gain through force of arms? Could it be that the Palestinians still did not accept Israel's existence? As he looked into the debate, he came across a notion that alarmed him. He discovered that some Palestinian leaders had suggested that the ancient temples of the Jews never stood on Jerusalem's Temple Mount, which is also the third holiest site in Islam and perhaps most, the contest, the contest, most contested plot of land on earth. If they don't accept there's a Jewish history in the land, then I don't think there's any chance of peace here. Once I wasn't too concerned about the psychological or even mythical issues, now I think they're at the right root of the whole thing. That realization led him deeper into a subject that even Israeli left-wingers now raise time and again, Arab anti-Semitism, which Odenheimer now sees as a real threat. So even way back then, I think a lot of the issues that, that come up for me in looking at uh, the attitude of, uh, you know, sort of the progressive left to Israel are already there. Like, how, how come um, this, uh, what, first of all, what, I believe that we do have, I'm going to get back on the other side too, but just to, for a moment on this point, on this side, why has Israel moved so far to the right? Why has it moved so far to the right? And I believe that this shock of the Second Intifada is a big part of it. I believe that we were on the cusp. We believed that we were on the cusp of peace. I don't know if you remember, but Ehud Barak offered the Palestinians all of the, basically all of Arab East Jerusalem, which was unheard of at that time. You know, before that, they were talking about a little part of it. This, all of Arab East Jerusalem, they were talking about the Temple Mount. We'll give you the whole surface of the Temple Mount, but we'll retain the foundations of the Temple. It was all symbolic. And whatever it is, it wasn't so much for me that Arafat didn't sign on the dotted line. He doesn't have to sign on anything. He can come back with a counteroffer. But to come back from that and to start killing men, women, and children indiscriminately, and if you can imagine, there were uh, something like 132 um, suicide bombs that exploded and killed multiple people during the course of those four years. And if you would take that in, you know, imagine uh, in the United States, that would be uh, 40, something like 48 times as many. So that would be like, um, what would be like 5,000 suicide bombs. I mean, if you can imagine what would happen in the United States if 5,000 suicide bombs by a, a group that, you know, denied your right to be in this country were going off, and then I think you can begin to imagine the kind of shock that the Israeli system went through, because we were all waiting for so long, you know, at least the peace camp, okay, peace is going to come, peace is going to come, peace is going to come, and then boom, this is what, this, this is what happens. Um, and, the, you know, just this sense, there, there's a, a, a writer named Benny Morris, and he was one of the first people, have you ever heard of him, a historian named Benny Morris? He's one of the great 
modern historians of Israel and was really the first one who wrote this kind of revisionist history talking about the Palestinian refugee problem and what happened in the 1948 war and really described that there were Arab populations that were atrocities were committed against them and the people had to flee. But at the same time, he came back and he wrote after this experience um, that, um, uh, that looking back, and throughout the history, he feels that the Palestinians never really accepted the existence of uh, a Jewish state. Now, when you say Palestinians, you're talking about a political, the political activists and elite of the, who define the Palestinian um, <coughs> national community. I don't never meant to see it, say Palestinians and mean all, Palesti pal all Palestinians. But I think this is a very real uh, feeling among many uh, you know, Israelis that moved them to the right was this shock of the Second Intifada. And this shock was, uh, again, but even despite that, many of us were, including myself, when in 2005, Ariel Sharon said, I'm going to uh, 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 leave Gaza, I was totally for it, and still am. Um, and yet that was another huge disappointment. So I'd say that those two, two events, the Second Intifada and then leaving Gaza and then almost immediately violence from Gaza, Hamas taking over, um, the, the, uh, uh, the imposition of the um, uh, you know, closing off Gaza happened much after, much after uh, the shooting and the Hamas uh, uh, taking over. And so, you know, my, my feeling is that, yes, there's a lot of things that we haven't uh, 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 done right, but, um, but uh, um, we're, we are only human. You know, if, we prick, if you prick us, do we not bleed? Now, for sure that same thing is true of the Palestinians. For sure the Palestinians have gone through a hell of a lot and even much more because the deaths on their side uh, have been greater than they have been on the Israeli side. But you have to look at, at both sides. By the way, Hillel Lieberman, what happened to Hillel Lieberman, this young man who I was talking about who was in my army unit and who believed that the Messiah was gonna come. So sadly enough, uh, at the very beginning of the second intifada, the uh, soldiers, Israeli soldiers, were guarding what was called the tomb of Joseph. And they left it. And then the Palestinian Authority was also supposed to be guarding it. But this Palestinian mob came and started to burn, burn it down. It had been turned into a synagogue that started to burn it down. And this young man, Hillel Lieberman, who had already a number of children, this was like 10 years later, it was Shabbat, Erev Yom Kippur. He, without unarmed, he went to try to save the Sefer Torah from there. And he was uh, shot to death and beaten to death there. So that young man from my army unit who originally was, uh, was uh, from, from, from Brooklyn. Yeah, just again about, about, the, about the Gaza withdrawal. So there again, I felt like we were giving a message to the Palestinians. The message was we're, taking, we're going back to the 67 borders. You know, we could have said, are we withdrawing, but not exactly to the 67 borders. No, went right back to the 67 borders, our toughest general, we dragged every last settler out of there, and we withdrew from these places in the Judea, in, from Samaria to in northern Samaria, 
Um, and I felt that we were giving a message to the Palestinians. Look, we're willing to withdraw, even to the 67 border. We're willing to take settlers and drag them out of their homes. And even those settlers, they're not, they weren't violent. They, they, they were, uh, you know, they, they were protesting. They didn't want to be dragged out, but they, they didn't turn on the soldiers. You know, we can do this. Let's see what you can do. And therefore, it was a very big disappointment. Now, it's true it was done not mutually. It was done there. There are kind of reasons why, both with Oslo and with the Gaza. And basically, I'm not saying that, you know, any of this proves anything about the future. It only proves that, it only says to me that there is, like I said, profound reasons why Israelis have moved to the right. And, um, uh, and I think that a key to breaking the, uh, the um, you know, sort of the, 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 the impasse on all this is to get beyond uh, the rhetoric of blame, which is so prevalent uh, when talking about Israel and the Palestinians. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. The same thing with the Palestinians. You know, everyone who sees all Palestinians as terrorists is also on a totally wrong path. And I see also, um, you know, there, there are also, I think, um, uh, you know, I'd say, okay, before I get to the, to the, to the points of light, I'd say that um, there are uh, several things that, uh, that are always left out of the narrative of the left. Um, one is the amazing success of the uh, Israeli Arab population. Um, the, the, uh, not the Palestinians, but the, the Arabs within Israel, two million Arabs within Israel, have had even, and not even even, especially in the last 10 years of Likud reign, have had tremendous success. I mean, you go to Arab villages now, the, the, the amount of economic development, the malls, the, it's remarkable. They, they've done incredibly, people have done very, very well. Not everybody, because there is a divide between rich and poor, but the, 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 the people who, the, the Arab-Israeli population is for sure gaining many through, yes? But is that accompanied by a feeling of um, satisfaction and happiness, or is it done in spite of and in, antipathy towards Israel? I don't think that there's so much antipathy in, in the, I mean, you know, it's hard to say because the politicians, really yeah, know. the politicians often have a much more, I think, radical view than the, than, than the people themselves. I think it really depends. I think that there are also a lot of Arab Israelis or Arab Palestinians that, that identify with the Palestinian struggle and so on, but there's a huge amount of um, coexistence, the amount of Arab Israelis in uh, university has gone up in the last seven years by something like 78% um, to the point where now 16% of Israeli universities are Israeli Arab. It's not that far from the 20% uh, 
of the population. In graduate schools, it's now about 13%, which is a little less, but still you know, quite impressive. Um, so there have been tremendous gains. There's huge cooperation. I mean, you know, yeah, there are, there are students are a vol very volatile population. They can, they can be, have very strong rhetoric one way or the other, as young people tend to do. But, you know, I was recently in a hospital in Afula, Jewish town, with a beautiful, new, you know, beautiful hospital. Almost the entire staff is, is Arab, Arab doctors, Arab nurses. We were treated, you know, fantastically, amazingly. I go to my, this is even with not Israeli Arabs, with the East Jerusalem Arabs. I live near what could be called Jerusalem's uh, Gan Saker, the Jerusalem Central Park. It's called Gan Saker. I don't know if you know, it's like the entrance to town. It's a big park. On Shabbat, you go there, and there are many families from Arab East Jerusalem that are making uh, barbecues along with ultra-Orthodox walking through and just all kinds of Israeli citizens. Everybody is, you know, I'm not saying that it's one big happy family and everyone is, uh, you know, partying together, but everybody is definitely coexisting. And the coexistence that, gets, that does happen in Israel, um, uh, like I said, I'm, not, I'm sure it's not perfect by any means, but it's impressive also because you know, in America, you know, someone once told me this, uh, we once saw this comedian, and he was talking about how when you put a new fish into an aquarium, so it's good to put a rock, a new rock in first, because then the fish that's there doesn't remember, doesn't think of it as his territory. He thinks he's in a new territory. He thinks he's in a new place. And the comedian was like making fun of it. Oh, there's a rock. There's a but um, so in America, I feel like everybody's worth, there's a new rock. You know, there's a new rock, and therefore we can all get along together because it's none of our original territories, except, of course, the people whose original territory it was, um, which are there are a lot in uh, Arizona. But um, you know, so so if you have Arab and Jewish, you know, Islamic and Jewish cooperation in Scottsdale, it is impressive. But in Israel, it's Arabs from an Arab village that, that they've never left, that they're deeply inside of their culture. They haven't been Americanized. They haven't been coexisting with, you know, maybe with Jews who are coming from Masharim or coming from whatever. And this coexistence is, is a daily fact of life. No one can take it. It's true in the hospitals. It's true in the universities. It's true on the streets. Um, you know, and, um, and so I think that's a very impressive thing that's often left out, and especially when people talk about uh, apartheid and, you know, things, things like that. Do you think the Arab Spring um, kind of changed the Arab mind as, like, they saw how bad it could be for some of their brothers around them? I, I don't know about the Arab Spring, but I do know that my, my son, who he took Arabic in, he spent a summer in Jordan, in Amman, uh, studying Arabic. And there are about 5,000 Israeli Arabs studying in colleges or universities in Amman. And he said that the, and he was living with one of the, a group of Israeli Arabs, because he had a friend, he, he went to Brandeis. He came from here and went to Brandeis, and he, Brandeis has these scholarships for Israeli Arabs, and this Israeli Arab had his cousin, and the cousin was studying in Amman, and he was living with the Israeli Arabs. And he said the Israeli Arabs come to Jordan, and they encounter for the first time an Arab society and also Arabs from other 
places, like from Saudi Arabia or from other places, and they realize that the, the freedoms that they have in Israel to criticize uh, the government, that you can't, if you, try, if you say a word against the king in Jordan, you'll be thrown in jail. So there is, an Israeli, that does help form their Israeli identity. And they do feel different than other, you know, other Arabs for sure. So I don't know about the Arab Spring, uh, but I think the actual experience of being in an Arab country does, does have an influence. Now, what I, I mean, okay, so that's one thing that I feel is left out of the conversation. I think uh, that whole history of the Intifada is left out. Um, uh, the fact that um, a majority of Israelis, about 51%, are actually refugees from Arab and Islamic countries is left out of the conversation, always left out of the conversation, that there were an equal amount of refugees from Islamic countries as there were Palestinians who left uh, Israel. Yeah, Has any Arab country ever finally acknowledged that expulsion in the 1950s? 750,000, I think. Not that, not that I know, not that I know of, not that I know of. And it's, it's very irksome also to me, particularly when, for many reasons, but also for this reason that Israel is seen as, uh, you know, a colonial power, uh, a white, we're, we're white, uh, when really 51% of the population is at least as brown as the Palestinians. Um, unless, you know, I don't know. That's what it seems, that's what it seems to me. I don't know where I lost, I, I seem to have lost my, where I was in my list of things, but you know, so all these things that are left left out of, and the other thing that I have to say that I feel has been a tremendous, tremendous uh, influence moving Israelis to the right, is seeing what has happened in the in the Arab, uh, you know, in the Arab world around us, you know, in Iraq and Yemen, but particularly in Syria, where you see not, you know, right across our border where a multi-ethnic state is collapsed and where uh, there's been, I don't know if you want to call it a genocide or massacres or politicide, but 600,000 people slaughtered, many of them civilians. So uh, a friend of mine, Micha Goodman, uh, who wrote a book called uh, Catch 67. I don't know if you've heard of this book, but it's a great book. Uh, it's an interesting book um, where he talks about the dilemmas of Israel after the 67 war and kind of the conversation within Israel about, about the Palestinian, about this, the, the conflict. And so he says that for a long time, initially, it was a kind of a battle in the Israeli discussion and Israeli politics between two groups that each had a utopian vision. There was a utopian vision of now we have a way to make peace because we can give back this land, we can make a Palestinian state, and then there's going to be peace, and a new Middle East, and everything is going to be great. And there is that, and then there was the utopian vision of the uh, uh, right wing, which is, we'll settle the whole land of Israel, We're, everyone's going to get behind us, we're going to do big, huge mitzvah, and you'll see, everything will be great. And now he says that both sides are really motivated by 
rather than by a utopian idea, but by, a, a, but by fear. Because the, the fear now, the, the, the right wing used to say, well, we can't have a Palestinian state because it'll be, maybe it'll be too strong, and it'll get armed, and it will attack us. Now the fear is that it'll be too weak, and it will fall apart. And those kinds of forces that, that, that created chaos in Syria and in Iraq and, and in Yemen and so on and so forth will bleed their way into Israel, into the West Bank, just as they did into Gaza. And so they're motivated by fear. And I think that this is, like I said, this, this seeing, seeing what happened in Syria is the other big thing that has turned Israel to the right. And to me, in a way, it's comforting in the sense that these are all very practical things. They're all very, it's not, I don't believe that Israelis are rejecting, you know, have moved to the right because they are, you know, out of greed, out of um, just jingoism, out of just expressing their power. There are real, very deep fears behind the Israeli move uh, to the right. Um, now, at the same time, I, I yes? But why during the last few years, yeah. with everything that you've talked about, yeah. why would the Israeli government continue to build settlements? Yeah, no. So there is, there is that, there is that, First of all, because they're, they're a right-wing government and there is a base, you know, like they talk about Trump's base being the evangel evangelicals. So Bibi does have this base, which is the settler movement, that they may not anymore believe that everything is going to be, you know, perfect once they settle the land of Israel, but they do believe that preventing the immersion of, an Israel, of a Palestinian state is the right thing to do and we have to keep settling. And I don't think, I, I, I'm saying I'm not happy that the Israeli policy, that, the, that, that Israel has kept reelecting a right-wing government. I'm not happy about that. I've never voted for, for the right. I'm just saying that in order to defuse this situation, we have to have empathy and understanding also for the Israeli side. And I haven't mentioned almost, I haven't mentioned anything about the Palestinians and what they've gone through and what they've suffered because a Palestinian could sit here and could tell you his story and it would also be true. And that. I'm not even justifying the Palestinian, though. Right, right. But why have they done that, you're saying? I am talking about putting more Israelis, more Israelis there in jeopardy. Yeah. In the West Bank, right. it's not going to become. Bec well, they want to do that. They want to prevent the emergence of a Palestinian state. That's the idea of the settlers and the settlement settlements. Is they want to they want to prevent the, the emergence of a of an Israel of a Palestinian state because they fear a Palestinian state, and, the small and also because they do. Of Israelis that would live there, the settlers are going to protect the West Bank by themselves. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense other than to. Uh, create even bigger um, security problems. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree with you. 
But there also is that Hillel Lieberman type of you know most of the most of the settlements you hear. There are two kinds of settlements. There are these large tracts that are fairly close to the border, that have some kind of consensus about them, like the Gush Etzion area, like Ma'ale Adumim, like Ariel, perhaps. You know, it's a little more complicated. And then most, and those settlements, the issue there is how many houses are you going to build? Are you going to be mo build more houses? They add to the numbers. That, I think, is less of a problem because I think in the end there will be land swaps if there is such a deal, which I'm going to come to in a second. Um, the, and these smaller settlements are, are, are more, uh, uh, they're small, they're very small, they're very small. And they're part of very uh, a, a, a limited but very dedicated ideological group. Uh, the the uh, you know they call them the Shivot Hakav, produced them the 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 line. There's a, a you know there's a, a, a theology and ideology behind it, and and they're and they're usually very small, but they have great symbolic power for a for a larger block of people. And Netanyahu has, you know, they're, they're Netanyahu's base. So they're sort of like, I don't know, what could you compare them to in Trump's America? Maybe to, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, but no, but what, what could you compare them? Yeah, like what is there that's symbolic? You know, it's not necessarily that significant, but it's very symbolic for Trump. Or for his for his people, um, ending yeah abortion. I mean that's very important, but I'm saying that he's not making that much progress. The wall, I don't know exactly, but it's become so to go against those settlements somehow is to say oh maybe that means we're going to withdraw, and withdrawal scares people now. The idea of withdrawal scares people now. Now on the other hand, I want to talk about the points of light. And I've seen, even, in the, even since like two, 2003, I went with a group of Israeli Arabs who organized this Israeli Arab Muslim and Christian together. They organized 125 Israeli Jews and 125 Israeli Arabs to go to Auschwitz together. To see, they wanted this, Israeli Arab intellectuals to actually see what the Jewish people had gone through. And this was totally organized and funded by, by the Arabs. It was a remarkable thing, and it was a remarkable to see how little people knew and how they came away, you know, so changed. And there are many projects, many projects of dialogue. There are, there's a whole system of, of Israeli and Arab schools, you know, Jewish and Arab schools together. Um, uh, there's all kinds of, I, I was recently at uh, two events that were extremely moving. One was um, this uh, group from Gaza, okay, that a woman from that group was allowed in. The Gaza Youth, it's called the Gaza Youth Committee. And they were formed around a few years ago. And their whole thing is to have, in an impossible situation, to have some kind of relationship with Israelis. So they have these Skype calls all the time with just normal Israelis back and forth. And this was an occasion where one of them was allowed into Israel and kind of spontaneously, sponta spontaneously the word went out and about 100 of us were on this, this uh, outside this bar in Jerusalem, 
A big screen was set up. This woman was there from Gaza, didn't speak a word of Hebrew, but through interpreters. And then on the Skype call to her, uh, this guy, Rami Uman, I think his name is, the one who founded it, he's constantly being harassed by Hamas and arrested, but he still is insisting on this, uh, on this dialogue. And um, uh, a, uh, another event I was at, there was a group in Gush Etzion uh, called uh, Shorashim, Roots, and then there's another word in Arabic. And they have, there's a Palestinian who gave his piece of land. It's not huge. It's probably maybe two, twice as big as this hall, two or three times as big. But this settler group of Palestinians and settlers are, do all kinds of activities there together, including a summer camp for Jewish and Arab kids, including uh, photography workshops, including what I was at, which was an iftar celebration, a celebration after Ramadan. And the Palestinians who were there were intelligent, well-spoken, um, and extremely committed to peace. Um, and I think that you find these kinds of pockets of, of dialogue, including between Arabs and settlers, uh, in, 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 in a number of places, in a number of places uh, you know, uh, throughout Israel. I don't know if you've ever heard of Rabbi Menachem Froman. Um, he was uh, one of the leaders of the settler movement, in, settler movement in, in, in originally, and became very devoted to, uh, to dialogue for, uh, for peace. And um, it seems to me that we began, we began talking, I was saying that the problem is this polarization where nobody, you know, nobody wants to listen to the other person. And where I think that because we're in this postmodern period where there's no absolute truth. There's no, you know, like vision that's connecting everybody together in one ideology. Or even, even science in a certain way has broken down. Not really, but in some way it seems to have broken down where these people believe in climate change, these people don't believe in climate change, whatever it is. And there's two possibilities. One is to create your own fortress, your own bubble. This is what I believe. You get your Facebook feed, and your Facebook feed is telling you all the time what you want to hear and the same things that you already believe. And the other possibility is to say, OK, if we can let absolute truth go for a minute and just let, let, let listen to each other and, and, and try to break through to another, you know, to, to, an, uh, to another kind of, of, of solution or settlement. So here's an example. Um, of, uh, of, of a new kind of thinking. Uh, I'm not signing on to it, um, but, um, but I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting. It's an example of a kind of thing that I, that's, that's, that, that I think, even though it seems crazy and out of the box now, I think that it's, it's gonna, we're, we are going to move towards that direction. So. This is a group of Israelis and Palestinians. And they say, you know, so far, right now, everything's at a dead end. So they've arrived at this set of agreed upon principles called together and separate, one land, two states. So they say like this, Palestine-Israel constitutes a historical and geographical unity from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean, which should consist of two sovereign states, Israel and Palestine, 
In these states, the nation, two nations will realize their rights to self-determination, and the border between them will be based on the June 767 lines. Okay, until then, it just sounds like a two-state solution. But what's the big deal? Okay, the open land vision. The Sioux state would be committed to a vision of one land within which the citizens of both states have the right to travel and live in all parts of the land. The right will be extended to all those who would become citizens of the two states, refugees in Palestine and Jews in Israel. It says before here that each state will have the right to <coughs> take in as many people as they want. Israel can take in as many Jews as they want. Palestine can take in as many Palestinians as they want. Um, so, so in other words, what they're saying is that people would be citizens of either Israel or Palestine, but they could live anywhere they wanted, but there would be look at number E, at the same time, both states would agree on a proportional number of citizens of the other state who would live in their territory and receive the status of permanent residents. This agreement would allow Israeli citizens, including those living today in areas allocated to the Palestinian state, to receive a status of permanent residence in Palestine, provided they agree to live peacefully with their neighbors under Palestinian sovereignty. This agreement would allow Palestinians, including those who will be naturalized in Palestine, to have a status of permanent residence in Palestine provided they agree to live peacefully with their neighbors under Israel, Israeli sovereignty. So this kind of solves the problem of, you know, both in the sense the settlers and the refugees by saying that where you live doesn't mean that that's where you're a citizen of. You're like if you're, you're a citizen of Israel, but you could potentially live as long as there's the same amount who are now, I'm not saying this, you know, there's many, 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 many issues, but I do believe that in this age of instant information, GPS, there's a kind of a new relationship between, it doesn't have to be geography and citizenship is exactly the same thing. You can mix it up in ways that I don't think we've, you know, we've, uh, we've done that uh, before. That's what's going on right now in the EU. And it's it screwed, is, huh? It's so screwed up. It's screwed. Well, I mean, the, the problem I see, I can see a lot easier Palestinians having this freedom to travel in Israel, but I do not see the freedom of Israelis. They go to some police site on the West Bank, and all of a sudden all hell breaks loose, and they say they're trying to take over, and there's a riot. Right. Right. No, there'd have to be a lot of change changes in the in, in in the Islamic world and in the and in the Palestinian. But there are there's both in Pal there is that's my experience. And among the Palestinians, there's a lot of peace-loving people too. The question is if a t corner can be turned. But you're right. Even not only the EU, multi-ethnic states have not done well in the Middle East. They've always ended up. But I also I just don't see a complete separation anymore. I don't think, think it can, I don't think it's really gonna happen because I don't think it's really even practical, the complete separation, yes? I think, unfortunately, one of the things that's missing is the realization that people, whether they're Jews and Israelis or whether they're Palestinians and Muslims, have a historical memory and, and commitment to their past. And I think when it was a decisive moment, as you said, in 67, and the Israelis made the decision to take the route. I, I think people were feeling very proud and 
be jingoistic and macho and all that. And the group that wanted to talk about giving the land away was small. Yeah, but there was also no one on the Arab side. They said, we're not, no agreement, no this, no that. Yeah, so yeah, it was Ben, ben Green and me, I think, the two people that wanted to do that. Leibowitz, yeah, there were yeah, a number. It was a really small group. And um, so it went in the other direction. And, and, and then we, the Jews, made the mistake of thinking that by, by putting roads in and bringing electrical power and, and modernizing the, the life of the Arabs that were now under their control, they would gain loyalty. And I think, I think we're making the same mistake again when we think that the Palestinians living in Israel because of their better economic situation, are going to become loyal to Israel. I think it's the same mistake. They won't. They'll, they'll, be, they'll be harking back to their historical roots, and that'll be a stronger pull than, you know, the power stays on 24-7. And I'm not, I'm not sure, because there really is a cultural difference, a deep cultural gap between Israeli Arabs and Palestinians How do they vote? at this point. point. They if they vote, a lot of them didn't vote. But if they vote, they vote for this. Uh, they, yeah, the, the, the politicians are pretty radical, but not all of them. I mean, this guy Ayman Uda, who's the head of the, you know, who's the head of the Arab bloc. Um, that's my last point. The yeah. radicals, unfortunately, always gain the day over the moderates because they're so, whether it's Israeli Palestinian or American politics, politics anywhere, it's always the radicals that take the strongest position. Because they're radical. Is it always, or is it this always. period in time? I mean, we had many years of the post-war period where there was, a, 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 for example, a ba I think there was a kind of a balance in America, and in between. When, uh, go. when the radicals, when there are radicals, they 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 have the passion and take the extreme positions, and the moderates, almost by definition, kind of. Don't want to rise to that occasion. You know, I'm looking at the right up here about yeah. people living in different places, but living yeah. in another place. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then you get, forget the big picture, the little picture. An, an Israeli living in Hebron, mm -hmm. who's an Israeli citizen and votes in Israel. Yeah. Versus, you know, there is a Palestinian living in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv and voting you know what, these people are feeling like I am not having the right to vote the place I live, you know? But maybe and there could I be a difference between local elections and national elections. For national elections, they could vote for their ethnic group or their original group, but maybe they could still participate in the local elections. That's possible. I'm just saying, I think that we're, there has to be a way to start thinking out of, out of the box. Out of the box. So I also, this, yeah. this proposal yeah. by the combined groups, yeah. how far has it gone? Not very far. Okay. It's just a, you know what? It's an idea. It's an idea and I think that really what will, what, if anything good is going to happen, it's going to come because there are groups coming from the grassroots that are getting along. And I think that there might be a sea change at some point among the Palestinian young people. One of the things that Palestinians said to me at that iftar, I mean, I know it's just anecdotal, and it's sort of self-selecting because they're the Palestinians that came to this, but they said, look, we look at the Israeli Arabs, and you know, 
what's so bad? And the, and, the, and the Palestinian Authority, on the other hand, is widely disliked. So I could see, I think that there needs to be, you know, the same guy, Micha Goodman of the Catch 67, he talks about how to shrink the occupation. You can end it, shrink it. So what he means by that is, for example, right now, Palestinian authority, Palestinians are controlled by Palestinians in most of the big cities. But when they want to leave one city to go to the other city, then they have to encounter the Israelis. So he says, make, keep it flowing. Make connections between the cities where that are, you know, make passes and so on and so forth where Palestinians don't have to encounter soldiers. I don't know, there's a whole, a whole bunch of suggestions. Make a route to the airport that Palestinians can come to the airport because now they're locked in. Make a route from there. So I don't think that's a solution, but I think that if we can calm things down for a while and keep the, 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 the dialogue moving, keep these groups moving who are talking to each other, that, that eventually from the grassroots there will be solutions that will, that will, uh, that will arise. That's, that's my hope. I can't say it's my belief, but that's my optimistic hope. Yes? Me? No, yeah. How do you deal with Gaza? How do you prevent that from in the if there's a withdrawal. Yeah. That's what I'm saying, that I don't think there can be, I think that's why Israelis don't want a withdrawal now, is because they're, they believe that it would happen. And, and how big is feelings among the populace in Palestine for peace, as opposed to continuing the strike? I think it's very hard, it's very hard to know. It's very hard to get real information about it. I know there are people who are very much for peace. I know there's a lot of anger at the P Palestinian Authority. There are also are people who are, you know, they're agitating and they're, 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 they're very much, they're, there's also, there's many things happening at once. There's a denial of the Jewish history in the land. There's, there is a lot of, I was just reading uh, yesterday about, you know, Yossi, have you heard of Yossi Klein Halevi? So it's, friend of mine, so he has this book, Letters to a Palestinian Friend. And now there's an addendum to it where the Palestinians responded. And, and one of them, uh, he did a joint interview with Yossi, he's a former Fatah member, and he was talking about how, how you know, the, the, the education in the Palestinian schools, uh, there's a lot of hatred, and it's directed towards Jews. It's not directed towards Israel, it's directed towards Jews. It's another topic that I didn't really talk about here, but that's another thing that I think is left out of the, of the conversation is Islamic anti-Semitism. And I, when I say Islamic, I don't mean all forms of Islam, but Wahhabi Islam has taken up a kind of anti-Semitic ideology, spread it over many, many places. I was shocked. I went, went to the, uh, I go a lot of times through Turkey, because I fly to Nepal, and now I'm a, my, my frequent flyer is through Turkish Airlines. So um, one time, it was 10 hours, and I have to say Turkish Airlines, the best airlines in terms of they put me up in a great hotel. And I came back through the international you know, terminal. Usually I'm just in the transit. This time I came back through the international terminal coming in, and there's a bookstore there. And prominently displayed is Henry Ford's uh, The International Jew. 
and another book about the Rothschilds with an octopus holding on to, you know, so the, the, the anti-Semitism in the, in the Arab Islamic world influenced by Wahhabi Islam is, is very real. So it is something. But could that shift? I believe, I believe that it could. I believe it could shift because I, 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 remember, I remember how I grew up, and you guys grew up with, this, with the belief that the Soviet Union and the America would be with nuclear arsenals at each other, you know, sure. every, all the time. We didn't think it was going to, you know, collapse. And I think there are things happening that that where could it could it could collapse. Now I want to just get back at the end. Well, first of all, anyone anyone else want to you want you want to say something? No. Anyone else? But in the meantime, no. Okay. So I just wanted to get back with why does it irk me so much? The the you know sort of progressive Jewish left that has no empathy for Israel, that wants to only place the blame on one side, uh, rather than criticizing both sides and empathizing, even more importantly, with, with both sides. And I think that, you know, there was, there was a lot of anti-Zionism before, before World War II. A lot of ultra-Orthodox were anti-Zionist. You know, now there's a small fraction that are anti-Zionist. But a lot of them were. They, they, ultra-Orthodox were anti-Zionist because they felt that it was changing the purpose of the people. The people had a purpose. Their purpose was to be a special people that carries the, the Torah with them. You know, that, that that's their, their, their purpose. They're, they're not a normal people. And this was going to turn them into a normal people. But then there were other people like... Uh, the Sulzbergers from the New York Times that were against the idea of Jewish peoplehood. They were, they believed that Jews were a religion. Uh, this was a position of uh, the early reform movement. That the Jews are a religion, they're not a people. And in a sense I feel like the question of Israel has replaced in a certain way, it, it is the question of Jewish peoplehood. And that those and that, that's why it pains me so much to see young people who believe that to be progressive means somehow to stop having empathy with Israel. Because to me, it's, an, it's a, somehow a, 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 a refuta, refute, refuting the, 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 the complex, I don't think they would say necessarily they don't believe in the Jewish people, but I feel like it's refuting the complexity, the fact, that we're, the fact that we're both a people and a religion is what's so strange and so wonderful about us in the modern world. And it's what irks people so much because we're supposed to be, you know, a lot of religions were beyond that. Christianity, doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, you know, and of course we also have Dior and so on and so forth, but I feel that, that the richness of, of who we are is connected to us accepting this strange uh, and wonderful kind of uh, tribal religion that has survived into the 21st century. Y yes. So Israel is multifaceted to say the least, but on a couple levels, they, the Israeli government, keeps doing things that is like sticking 
the finger in your eye, makes totally. it hard to make those arguments. Yes. Uh, Hannah mentioned the, the settlements. You know, I cringe whenever they add new new numbers of houses because all it does is fulfill our, our enemy's worst comments about you know occupation and all of that. We just don't need that publicity. The other thing is the because absolutely of the, because of the government structure and the accommodations they have to make to form a government, you end up with the Israeli government alienating a significant percentage of the diaspora. Yeah. That is conservative and reformed Jews. And, um, and and basically saying, we don't need you anymore because we've got the evangelical Christians in the United States. Terrible. Terrible. I mean, I, I was just to, 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 to tell you one more thing that I, I was very much the, the government, Israeli government, uh, the past four years also targeted the African refugees who came to Israel and said, we want to get rid of them. I was like, you know, it was horrifying to me. Jews getting rid of African re refugees. I can't defend those things that the Israeli government is doing for sure. Well, the same thing. I believe that a lot Liberal Jews in the United States view Netanyahu the same way you the same way they view Trump. Trump, absolutely. And he is the epitome of what Israel is presenting it's to terrible. the United States. And it's very difficult when you're thinking, you know what, Israel is having their own Trump. Yes. The way he behaves and the way he you know Yes. And that is another major so for us, who have grown up with a different Israel over the years, for us, it's a, as much as a success, and particularly for us who are conservative Jews, for people, screw you, excuse me for the expression, um, and the young people who are viewing Netanyahu the same way they view Trump, and that's where you have Absolutely, this schism. And I hold Netanyahu responsible for creating a situation in which now Israel, which used to be a bipartisan issue, is now becoming a partisan issue. And it's a terribly dangerous thing, and I, I, I think that I blame, I blame him. The only thing I can say is that just like Trump is going to, you know, hopefully will go, so I think Netanyahu is not going to last, and that all the Israel that you remember is still there. It's still there, it's still there, you know, there's tremendous creativity, there's tremendous, uh, every, uh, you know, whether it's scientific creativity or artistic creativity, there's, um, you know, that, that, that Israel didn't go away, just like the America didn't, that America didn't suddenly go away when, when Trump got elected. And what I feel is that we got pushed into, uh, you know, we pushed right words and, um, and then begin, and then and then have this base kind of take over and, and manipulate, and um, uh, and at the same time, the more you know, if 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 Israel because of that gets increasingly demonized, although they were demonized all the time, you know, I, I remember just as in a, in parentheses during the pushback to the Second Intifada when. There was the Chomat Magen when they went into Janine and they, I don't know if you remember, Sharon went in and I had calls from uh, the press in the United States uh, saying. The press reports were totally backwards. Yeah, they said, 
we heard that the whole West Bank has been destroyed. I mean, insane, insane things. Um, so, so anyway, that's what I would say. The old Israel still is there. Um, there are, there is danger, because I see creeping in, uh, you know, the 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 sort of dangerous xenophobia that can come into, that can come from the Jewish rhetoric of chosenness and all that kind of stuff, to, to dehumanize others, is creeping into, you know, parts of the population that I think it wasn't before, but. There's a lot of things that are going on in the grassroots that I that I also see as as very positive. So you said the, it's becoming more bipartisan in this country. Yes. And others, but isn't that as much because the liberals are moving so far to the left, as as much as it is the conservatives moving to the right? I, I think that's true in, in the United States. In Israel, it's not so much true. No, but, it, but, but you brought it here. Here, it's yeah. Bipartisan issue yeah. here. Same thing in, in the UK. Yeah. I mean, the Liberal Party Absolutely. is blatantly anti-Semitic. Right. You're right. And the Conservatives... You're right. You're right. I, uh, Absolutely. I think there's... Yeah. Is, you know, I agree with you. quote Trump, but I think there's blame on both sides. There's... Although it started when Netanyahu came and totally... No, it started way before. I think it's... speak to the... Um, to the Congress. To the Congress. No, I think he's been doing it before. He was also supporting Mitt Romney openly. It was that was a, a bad, bad scene. And the left has been, you know, had sort of anti-Semitic or anti-Israel tendencies, which can, you know, for a long time too. Well, I mean, but and but lack of freedom of speech. If, if you are yes. a conservative or pro-Israeli, extremism has never been good for the Jews, left or right. right. No argument. One last session. Uh, last question. On, uh, Facebook, you know, the Palestinian cause, there is all sorts of stuff just coming through. They're pumping it out as they much are. as they can. And that's, yeah. you know, all this stuff that Netanyahu uh, created, and that just feeds into it and gives the it does. It does. Spread around, it know? does. So let's hope that we have a different kind of government. And then in uh, October. Let's Thank hope you, so. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.